Good morning, good morning, Moran Park. There we go. I found my voice. Happy Thanksgiving to you, and happy first Sunday of Advent as well. Uh, fourth, the, the four Sundays before Christmas are the beginning of Advent. We don't typically do the candles here at Moran Park, but this morning is the hope would be the hope candle. Advent just kind of means from the Latin Adventus means just coming or appearing. Um, and is a season where we're preparing our hearts for Christmas, where we're looking back on the first coming of Christ and His first coming and remembering that He has, has come and He's died on the cross for us, raised from the dead, and now exalted at the right hand of the Father, and then looking forward to His second coming where He comes uh, to consummate uh, our salvation and consummate the new creation. And so, yeah, let's be preparing our hearts for Christmas and the celebration of the coming of our Lord and, and our Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Happy first Advent to you. Well, this morning we return to the Gospel of Matthew and to our series uh, in this Gospel. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We're now in chapter 5. I want to just kind of remind you uh, just a little bit of backstory about the Gospel of Matthew, that it's a Jewish gospel written for Jewish Christians, especially. Now, it's not that we can't learn anything from the Gospel of Matthew as non-Jewish uh, people. We can learn a ton uh, from this gospel. But it was originally written for Matthew, a Jew, writing especially for a Jewish audience, a Jewish Christian audience, who are wrestling with unbelieving Jews and who are wrestling with those who rejected Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah, wrestling with a synagogue. And what's, you know, the, the, the early Christian movement exploded on the scene, but it was an early Jewish movement. It was thoroughly Jewish when it started, right? It was only a little bit later as uh, the gospel got underway and gone, went from beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea and beyond Samaria and reached outward into the Gentile nations of the earth that it began to be increasingly Gentile. But it started as a Jewish movement. And he had Jews who believed in Jesus and started to follow him and believed he was the Messiah, the long Messiah, meaning the, the long-awaited and promised king of the Old Testament scriptures that were, was to come and to bring God's, God's kingdom to earth and, and restore all things and bring about the new creation. And then there are other Jews who rejected Jesus as Messiah. How could he be? He's not, he has no army. You know, he has no power. He's very average. He comes from a nowhere place like Nazareth, they rejected Jesus. And so the Jewish Christians are wrestling with their Jewish and their non-Jewish brothers and sisters, and they're wrestling with the synagogue and trying to, they're caught, they're being kicked out of the synagogues, right? And they're wondering, what do we do? Like, is Jesus, you know, we're losing, we're losing our place of worship, we're losing our reputation in our communities, we're, we're losing our, our, our place, with our, our families are kicking us. Our families are kicking out of us out of our families just because we've, we've accepted Jesus. Uh, what do we do? Is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he in fact the one, you know, we've lost everything to follow him. Is he in fact the one who was to come? And so our text this morning, I say all that just as backstory because our text this morning is a very Jewish way uh, of talking. Um, and we're going to see that here in just a moment um, as we read it. So, without further ado, let's read Matthew 5, 17 to 20. This is our next text for this morning. Remember that we're in the, um, 
we're in the first major block of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. There's, there's a lot of narrative, right? There's 28 chapters, but there's these five blocks of uh, teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've just kind of entered into the first major block of teaching, traditionally called the Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is how we best, best know that. So we're really now getting full steam ahead into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and these four verses set up the next several sections of Forrest, Jesus' interpretation and relationship to the law of Moses. Let's go ahead and read these verses now together. Verses 17 to 20 of Matthew 5. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is how I want to do this. I want to take you step by step through this text. It's four verses. I want to walk you step by step, verse by verse, through the logic of these four verses. Explain it. And then I want to take a step back. And as we've done before, I want to situate this text into the larger epic story of Scripture and let that serve as kind of a lens for understanding how this text makes sense, okay, and what, what Jesus is doing here. I think apart from that larger epic story uh, lens, we'll have a hard, we'll wrestle with this a little bit and struggle with this. But if we understand it in light of the epic story, I think this will fit well for us and make sense so we can take this home and apply it to our lives. All right? So I'm going to walk you through the text, four verses step by step. I'm going to take you through the epic story, and we're going to plug that text into the large epic story, help make sense of it, and we'll have some concluding applications. Sound good? All right. Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets, or the prophets, is a reference to Israel's scripture. It was a way of summarizing uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it their scripture. It was the only scripture that they knew. There was no such thing as a New Testament, right, at this time. There is no New Testament. The only scripture that's available is Israel's scriptures. The Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today, the Hebrew Bible. And in Jesus' day, this was divided up into three parts. You had the law, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books of the, of the Bible. And then you had the prophets, which was a huge swath of material, and that included historical books like Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel, and of course included also the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jesus doesn't mention the third grouping here, but he does in Luke, Luke 24, he calls it the Psalms. Uh, the third group was kind of a ragbag or a catch-all. 
uh, included the book of Psalms, Proverbs, the, the wisdom books, what we traditionally call the wisdom books, Song of Solomon. Uh, the book of Daniel was in there as well. He doesn't mention that here, but this is a convenient way of just calling the ref referring to all the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament uh, this morning, what Jews of his day understood to be Scripture. Jesus says he's not come to abolish them, but to, to fulfill them. Now, Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew will say some very interesting things about the law. And he goes head-to-head -head with what we're going to find out are the Pharisees, what we call the Pharisees. They were kind of the lay, lay people, though. They had no formal authority, but they, had, they knew their Bibles, they loved their Bibles, and they taught their Bibles. And he's going to go head-to-head -head with them at times, and they're going to have arguments over the law. And sometimes it's going to sound like Jesus is either against the law or he's wanting to change the law. Um, and apparently, we're not for sure, but it sounds like non-believing Jews were accusing Christian Jews of saying, hey, your Messiah, you know, he... he tinkered with the law. He didn't, he didn't uphold the law. He didn't obey the law. He, remember, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Jews thought that was like against the law. Or he didn't keep Sabbath all the time the way they thought they should, he should keep Sabbath. So your teacher, he didn't keep the law. And I think Jesus is saying, no, you've got to understand me. I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of the scriptures. I came to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill them. Fulfillment motif in Matthew is a very prominent theme in the Gospel of Matthew. But this doesn't just mean, and we've, we've seen this a couple of times already, that fulfillment does, we typically think of fulfillment as like, okay, there's in the Old Testament, there's these messianic prophecies that there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come, this, this long-awaited and promised king who's going to restore all things and save, save the world and bring about a resurrection of the entire created order and save it from sin and death. That's true. There are those messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But they comprise only 2% of the entire Old Testament. Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament comprise only about 2% of the entire Old Testament. So did Jesus only come to fulfill those messianic prophecies? What about the other 98%? Right? What does he mean here? Yes, he does come to and is the fulfillment of those Old Testament messianic prophecies. But it's broader than that. It's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. Remember that the Old Testament is the, big, is a, is the first half of an epic story. Right? It's a story. It's the story of the whole world. And especially the Old Testament is, yes, the true story of the whole world, but especially beginning from Genesis 12, is Israel's story. It's how God calls Israel to be the channel of world redemption. Israel's gonna be, it's Israel's story. How God calls Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they become the 12 tribes. And they, he then calls Israel to be his kingdom of priests and light to the nations to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth. The Old Testament is Israel's story and how they're on mission to bring God's salvation to the rest of the world. Jesus comes to fulfill that story. 
Where is Israel at the end of the Old Testament? They're stuck, right? They're stuck in their sin. God's plan of, God's plan of world redemption through Israel has come to a screeching halt. Why? Because of sin. It, we discover in the Old Testament that Israel called and chosen to be the light and the channel of God's salvation to the rest of the, the, rest of the nations of the earth herself partakes of the fundamental problem of the evil human heart. Israel herself is part of the problem. And by the end of the Old Testament with Malachi, she's stuck again. She comes under God's judgment. She has not accomplished the purpose for which she's been called. Israel is stuck herself in sin. And Jesus has come to fulfill that epic story. Jesus has come to unlock Israel from her sin. Jesus has come to remove the evil heart and create a faithful people, a faithful Israel for himself, who will then go out and bring God's salvation to the nations. He's bringing Israel's story within God's larger purposes for the world to its fulfillment. More on this in just a moment. Let's move to verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Note the key word, for or because at the beginning of verse 18. It relates to the verse that we just read, verse 17, in a logical relationship. Verse 18 is the ground or the basis for why Jesus does not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. You see that? Flip, flip between 17 and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It means that Jesus is providing an explanation for why we should not think he has come to abolish the law. He hasn't come to set it aside for or because the law is permanent and valid and effective as God's will for his people until this present evil age gives way to the resurrected new world. Do you see that? The law of Moses is found in the, in the Old Testament embodies the essence of God's will. And God's, Jesus has not come to do away with that. He's come to create a faithful people who keep it. Now we know that we're the new covenant people of God, they were the old covenant people of God, and that they're, they're, it's transformed, right? There's, we, don't go to, we don't keep kosher laws anymore. That's been transformed. We don't go to a temple anymore. We don't need a temple. Jesus is the temple. We don't keep Passover anymore, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, because Jesus is the Day of Atonement sacrifice sacrifice that all said the essence of God's will embodied in the law isn't repealed the essence of that for God's people is carried forward into the new covenant 
And the difference is going to be that God here, the people don't have the heart to obey, to keep it. Whereas here in the new covenant, God's people are given the gift of the Spirit and enabled to keep it. Jesus is creating. Jesus is fulfilling this epic story. Jesus is fulfilling the law and bringing it to its consummation. He's unhin. He's he's unsticking. Is that a word? Unsticking Israel. And the cog begins to turn again. And he's creating a faithful people for himself, a faithful Israel who will in fact keep the law. We don't abolish the law, Paul says. We fulfill the law by the power of the Spirit. Verse 19. So I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it because the law is effective until the end of the age, which brings up the curious question, what happens to Scripture at the end of the age in the new, in the new world? Scripture is going to be like on the, on the shelf in the new heavens and new earth. You're not going to need your Bible anymore. The Bible's going to be right here. You are going to be perfected. You're going to be a full-bodied image bearer, saved by grace, loving Jesus and your glorified resurrection body forever. You won't need the Bible to remind you of what God's will is. You will know God perfectly. You might take it off the shelf once in a while, um, take a look at it, have fond memories about it, how you loved the, word, the written word of Scripture. It'll still be there. But its purposes will have been accomplished. You will be perfected to live with him forever. I digress. Verse 19. Therefore, another key word, therefore provides an inference from what verse 18 said and verse 17 said to now verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. Because the law is eternal, is, is, continues to be God's will for God's people uh, right to the end of the age, therefore, his people ought to be doing it. Right? All the law, all the essence of the law. We should be doers and teachers. Doers and teachers. The law is still in effect for God's people, and therefore we should be doing the law and teaching it, teaching it to others. Of course, not, the, not necessarily the law of Moses as it's found in the law of Moses, but as it's in the hands transformed by, by Messiah Jesus, the, the one who fulfills the law and brings that story to its epic fulfillment. And we have to, of course, we just have four verses here. We have the entire rest of the New Testament that kind of unpacks this for us. Um, Galatians, Romans, Hebrews. You have to read the rest of the New Testament to see how all of this is unpacked. But we should be doers and teachers of God's will to the nations. Why should we be doers and teachers? Because remember that Jesus 
Remember, Gen- remember Matthew 2. He's been building an argument. Out of Egypt I called my son. Finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. That's, of course, a reference to Old Testament Israel. Jesus in Matthew, Matthew 2 is being called. He's being called the son of God. He's being called Israel. And then we get to Matthew 4 and he goes through the wilderness. And he goes through the wilderness for 40 days. And he does. He succeeds in the temptations in the wilderness where Israel failed. He is Israel. Who, he is Israel in his own person. He's bringing God's mission, God's story to its epic fulfillment. And those who come to him and are his disciples and who are in him are the embodied new Israel. Why does he, why does he pick 12, 12 people, 12 disciples to be his, his, his core of his followers? Why, why 12? Because he's creating a new Israel around himself who will be faithful where Old Testament Israel was well, failed. Jesus is creating a faithful people of himself, not by works, but by grace, because of his cross, because of his spirit. We are enabled to be those who fulfill the law. And so we're to be doers and teachers of God's will. Israel is to be that Old Testament kingdom of priests and the light to the nations. We're the new covenant people, kingdom of priests, who are to be doing the law and teaching it to others, being that light to the nations. That's our task. That's our mission. That's our identity. Verse 20. Again, look, another, another logical keyword. For or because. For I tell you, why should we be doers and teachers of the Messianic Israel? Why should we be Messiah people purchased by his cross, filled with the Spirit, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Surpasses, abounds, it could also be translated. This would have made the disciples of Jesus gasp. How can anybody be more righteous than the Pharisees? Gotta get, we, we kind of understand the Pharisees from the Gospels, to be the bad guys, and they do become the bad guys. Why? Because they're the ones that eventually put Jesus on the cross, right? Like he's just in continual opposition with them, and they eventually hate him, and eventually put him on the cross. So yes, for us, Pharisees have a very, they put a bitter taste in our mouth, if you will. We read about the Pharisees, and we're just like, you crucified my Lord. I, I And then we even use the word today to be like, don't be a Pharisee, right? Which means don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a legalist. You know, don't try to save yourself by your works. No, don't be externally righteous, but actually a a hypocrite on the inside. And and we get that from Scripture. We'll look at that in just a moment. But in the first century, among Jews, the Pharisees were the good guys. Everybody looked up to the Pharisees. They loved their Bibles. They studied their Bibles. They taught their Bibles. People looked up to them. If you wanted to know, if you wanted to know God's will on a certain matter, you'd go to a Pharisee. 
And so for Jesus to say this, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, would have made the disciples gasp with dismay. How could we, you know, average, ordinary Jews who can barely read and write, how could we be like, how could we be better than the Pharisees? How could we be more righteous than the Pharisees? Sounds impossible. But what we see about the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel, and of course we've not gotten this far yet, but as the, as the narrative unfolds, we see that something's very wrong with not every single Pharisee, but the Pharisees as a whole, as they embody Israel of the Old Testament. For example, Matthew 23, 2 and 3. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. Oh, Max, you got that one. The scribes and the, and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they don't practice. You see that? It gets worse. Look what Jesus has to say in Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28 about the Pharisees. Woe to you. This is verse, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew 23, 25-28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside, the heart, right? Then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear very beautiful and religious. But within, you're full of dead, man's, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, the Pharisees are still stuck in epic story, Act 3. They embody Israel under the Old Covenant. They still have the evil human heart. They haven't been saved. They haven't been given the gift of the Jesus and the Spirit yet. They've rejected him. And so what's left is for people to be, the Pharisees to be religious, try to obey the law externally or outwardly or in a legalistic way. But on the inside, there's no true heart righteousness, right? This is what kills people today is to think that you have to, by your own self-effort, be religious to try to please God. But on the inside, you're unchanged. You don't have the gift of the new heart. You don't have the supernatural, spirit-wrought work of righteousness gifted to you here. But if you get that, what comes out of you? If Jesus comes and does his work in you, regenerates you, renews you, removes the heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh, right? That we've talked about. What comes out of you? Righteousness. Humble righteousness, because you know it's not yours. It's God working his spirit in you through the gift of the new heart that he's given to you. It's all, it's all of grace. It's not by your own works, right? But as Jesus works his righteousness in you by his spirit, out of you comes 
Paul calls it what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness to what? Faithfulness to God's will. So your righteousness must be surpassing that of the Pharisees. We need to be more faithful to God than the Pharisees who were actually not faithful to God at all and displease Him by their dead religion and their heart that is far from Him. So in summary, the passage, the passage basically says Jesus has come to fulfill the epic story of Scripture, the Old Testament law and prophets. This to culminate, to bring it to its intended outcome, to bring it to its climactic denouement and fulfill it and bring about a faithful people who love God and teach God's will to others. You, Ramp Park, are part of God's new covenant, Israel. Jeremiah 31 taught this long ago. That the Torah or the law of Moses would not be replaced but transformed. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's a reference to the Mosaic covenant, right? That's the covenant to the covenant of Sinai, the law of Moses, the old covenant. For this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will abolish the law, I'll get rid of the law. No, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart and that I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Interaction, interactive question for you. What happens to the law from the Old Covenant to the new covenant. Now we're not the old covenant people of God, right? Which covenant people are we? Are we the new covenant people of God? Or are we the old covenant people of God? We're the new covenant people of God. So tell me about the law and the new covenant people of God. What has happened to you? The law has been written on your heart by the Spirit. It's not a bunch of external rules anymore. You found, despite yourself, that when you believed in Jesus and you gave yourself some time and this, this began to unwork, work itself out in your life, you began to love Jesus. Not perfectly. This is progress over a lifetime, not perfection overnight. 
Not perfection overnight, but progress over a lifetime. Not perfectly, but you began to find yourself loving God. You began to find yourself delighting in his word. You began to find yourself wanting, wanting, wanting to obey him. Where did that come from? It comes from the gift of the Spirit at work in your life, given to you, purchased for you by the precious blood of the cross of Christ. The gift of God is the cross and the Spirit. The cross and the Spirit. The cross for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift, the, Jesus' gift of himself in the person of the Spirit to make you like him. It's the expulsive power of new affections. It's the miraculous gift of heart-wrought righteousness. And it's all free. And it's all a gift. He takes out the heart of stone. He puts in the heart of flesh that begins pulsing with life for God. It's what old covenant Israel doesn't have and why they failed. And it's the only reason why new covenant Israel, the church, will succeed. Why are we going to succeed in the mission to bring God's gospel to the nations? A heart that pulses with life for God by the gift of His Spirit. Why will God accomplish His purposes in and through the church? God's own sovereign grace at work in our hearts, giving us a desire to know God and to make Him known until the job is done. All the nations must hear the gospel and then He will come back, it says and consummate his redemptive purposes and bring us into his kingdom forever. In conclusion, I just have maybe two applications. <clears throat> If you have yielded your life to Jesus as your Savior, if you have come to Him and said, I'm wrecked. You're a holy God. I know I don't deserve to be in your presence. I feel, I feel my sin. I know my sin. And I want you, I, if you'll have mercy on me and give me the gift of the new heart, I, I want that. It's really, don't have to do anything to earn his favor. It's actually simpler than dropping a, a penny off this podium to the floor. If you want the gift of the new heart, ask him for it. It's free. He came to do this for you. He came so that you could finally and fully become human. 
He's come to restore you as his image bearer. He wants to save you from yourself. And he is actually in process of making each of you who have put your trust in him, have made him your Lord and Savior. He is actually, actually making you a genuinely righteous person. He is actually at work in you, making you genuinely and fully human. He is actually at work in you to heal you. We tend to want to wait until Jesus comes back and say, that's when I'll be fully healed. And that's true. That's when you will be fully healed. But he is already at work unleashing his healing power in your life. And the evidence that you are received the gift of the new heart is the evidence of genuine love for him. Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Do you love his word? Do you want to follow him? And if you don't, ask him for more. To be faithful to our text, my second conclusion, it does serve as does serve as something of a warning as well. Our text is just four short verses. It does not stress Christ's saving work but self, but rather its effects. If you are not seeing genuine spirit-raw heart righteousness coming out of you, if you're looking at your life, you're examining yourself, be honest with yourself. What do you love? What do you love the most? Who do you love the most? Who's first in your life? He demands as a disciple that you would have him be first. He will not take second place. So are there any idols in your life? The fruit of your outward life is the evidence of who is on the throne of your heart on the inside. Let me say that again. The fruit of your outward life is evidence of who's on the throne on the inside. The two are always related. If you're trusting God and loving God, you're obeying God. If you're not trusting and loving God, you're not obeying God. So who is Lord of your life? You or Jesus? Do you yield now to his healing and kingdom-building work in your life to heal your wayward heart?
if it's wayward? Do you have the heart of stone or do you have the heart of flesh? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? He does wish to come in. He is gentle and sweet and he loves you. He is gentle and sweet and he loves you. But you must let him in. You must choose this day whom you will serve. I think we have one more song. We'll have prayer team. If we have a prayer team come forward. Maybe you want to talk to Jesus this morning. Maybe you need somebody to help you talk to Jesus. You don't need to talk about yourself. You don't need to pray. Come up for prayer for yourself. Maybe there's somebody on your heart that needs Jesus and you want to have um, Bob and Tony pray for that person. They'll be up here for you. Also, the discernment seats. Uh, I believe Dennis. Dennis, are you up for the discernment seat? Okay, okay. If you have something that you think that the Lord is stirring in your heart and you want to share it with the rest of the body, uh, Dennis will be coming up as well to discern that uh, with you. You know, let's go ahead and have that final, that final song. <clears throat>